Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter number 12. Deuteronomy chapter number 12. Man, what a blessing to be in the Lord's house tonight. And uh, I told Brother Larry, I said, uh, I was sitting there and I thought, man, I, I kind of like we've just shaking things up, you know, just doing it different. That's okay. Keep the devil guessing, right? And I thought, that's good, man. I enjoy that. And I thought, hope he remembers we ain't done congregational singing yet. Amen. <laughs> and he had, amen. So I should have had more faith in him, but I, I enjoyed doing things a little bit different. I think that's good from time to time and uh, keeps the devil and the Baptist guessing. So I think that's a good thing. Deuteronomy chapter 12 tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number 28. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse number 28. Of course, uh, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and uh, he is speaking on the behalf of God. And that's why sometimes you'll see in this that as he's speaking, he'll be speaking as though he's speaking as Moses. And other times, it just seems to blend seamlessly in with the conversation of the Lord. It's not unusual in the Word of God and, and not out of keeping here in Deuteronomy because he is the, he's the prophet of God at this point uh, in the nation and, and he is uh, speaking to them the truth of God. The Bible says in verse 28, Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that it may, it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee forever. When thou doest that which is good and right, in the sight of the Lord thy God. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them and dwellest in their land, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise." Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in this place. Now I pray that you'd stir hearts. I pray that Christ would receive glory and that we would be obedient unto you. Lord, we know if those three things happen, Lord, that you can do great things in our life, and, and you can uh, perform that which is well-pleasing in your own sight through us. So help us be obedient to your word tonight. Help us to receive it, to hear it. Help us to magnify Christ through that obedience. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. For the past few Sunday nights, we, we've not been doing a series, because I don't do series anymore, but we've been preaching kind of similar thoughts over and over and over again, and uh, they've all sort of been out of the same passage, and they've sort of all been a little bit about the same, I guess we'd call it a series, amen. And uh, so we've been preaching through and following these examples of the usage of a phrase through the book of Deuteronomy, and it is the phrase, take heed. In our text tonight, you find it. In verse number 30, when the Bible says, Take heed to thyself, that thou be not snared by following them. And we've considered the greater context of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, if you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know it at all. And, and we have considered the greater context that Israel has been brought out of the land of Egypt. They have wandered for 40 years throughout the wilderness until that generation that would not trust God would perish away. Now they're on the cusp of going into the land. They're at Kadesh Barnea again, where they once were many years before, and before they go into the land, God has instructed Moses to remind them of their history and to remind them of the truth of God. And so he is commanded with retelling the law to them. And in doing so, he reminds them of a few things. One, he reminds them, it begins with them in Egypt, 
He reminds them of how that the Lord brought them out by the blood of the Passover lamb, how that He purchased them unto Himself, how that He literally paid their redemption price. He bought them. They were slaves in Egypt, and He laid the money on the barrel head and bought them for the price that they called. And so whenever he gets them uh, at the cusp of uh, Kadesh Barnea, he reminds them that they don't belong to themselves anymore, that they are a purchased people. They have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Man, thank God for the day that I got bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that he had made the payment uh, 2,000 years ago on Calvary's Hill, but I'm glad the day he paid in full was written over my soul in red in his blood. We, too, are a purchased people. When a person says, my life is my own to do with as I please, that's a form of blasphemy. That's not true. It's sacrilege. Uh, that is just as surely stealing from God as it would be to take $100 out of the plate. And uh, so they are a purchased people. Not only that, he reminds them how that an entire generation of firstborn perished in Egypt because they did not have the blood applied. But that Israel had been uh, had been spared of that those that had placed the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts and lintel of their house. Let me just take it as another opportunity to remind you, hey, listen, whatever distinctions may have and existed between Jew and Gentile at this time in human history, there was only one reason that the Israelites were spared and the Egyptians perished. One reason, and that's because the blood was applied over the Israelite doorpost. You say, what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's what avails. And that's what availed even then. Who had the blood applied to their heart and to their life? Well, who had it applied to their door? They were spared. And so Israel was reminded they are a pardoned people. Uh, as far as any innate or intrinsic goodness on their part, they deserve to have their firstborn slain in Egypt, just like the Egyptians had. But God, through His grace, and through the blood had pardoned them. Not only that, he reminds them that they are a peculiar people. God has saved them out of Egypt so that they might be different than Egypt. And they are called and commanded to be a distinct and peculiar people. And man, that reminds me of our walk today in the church. Uh, there are some similarities between what God was doing then in Israel and what he's doing today in the church age. Israel wasn't supposed to blend in and fit in. They were supposed to stand up and stand out. In the same respect, hey, listen, our job, I, I know you may have signed up for that covert Christianity, but I done looked it up in the book and it ain't there anywhere, amen? Uh, there, ain't, there ain't no covert Christianity. I know there was a few that were disciples of Jesus uh, in secret. Uh, but then, you know, something funny about it, Brother Charlie, you said both of them boys at Calvary. You know, Calvary shames us uh, over this covert Christianity. If the Lord Jesus would suffer and bleed and die, be spit upon, reproach and uh, stripped naked and laughed at and scorned on the cross of Calvary, how dare we be too coward, be too yellow to talk to our co-worker about him? Hey, listen, man, Calvary's done changed all that. There was some that before, but then when the Holy Ghost takes up residence in a man's life, he ain't going to be hushed up. He ain't going to be quieted. He's going to bear witness and testimony of the Lord in somebody's life. And so, likewise, we are called to be a peculiar people zealous of good works. And then they were reminded that they were a promised people. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, their entire existence was predicated on and based around the promises that God 
had made to them. In other words, they were a people that were living prospectively, looking forward. And man, what a picture of the church in these days that we're living in. Well, listen, part of the problem, part of the reason the church has lost its power is it spends all its time looking inward, looking outward, and sometimes looking downward when we ought to be looking upward. We ought to be looking up for our redemption drive. Ah, the Lord's coming soon, man. You better serve Him now because you may not have tomorrow. So we find that God was reminding them through Moses of all these things. But then on ten separate occasions, God commands the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy to take heed about some things. And we could maybe say it this way. They are also commanded to be a prudent people. God does not endorse or appreciate uh, recklessness. God expects His people to be cautious and circumspect, is the Bible word, in the way that we live our lives. And so on several occasions, God commands His people to take heed about some things. Now, I'd remind you what it means to take heed. We've noticed three thoughts and kept them close to our minds as we've done this preaching. To take heed means, number one, to give attendance to a matter. When you tell someone to take heed that you do this or that you do that, what you're saying is, don't neglect the performance of a particular action or a particular responsibility. And certainly God is commanding Israel not to lax in these things, not to ignore these things. Hey, there's some things we better take heed about. We better make sure that we're doing it. There's a lot of things in the Christian life, if we leave it up to our flesh, our flesh is not going to remind us to do it. Uh, if we leave it up to our flesh, our flesh is going to conveniently allow us to forget it. I remember when we were growing up, we uh, would, would go to church on Sunday mornings, and then Sunday afternoons was nap time. But, you know, when, when you're like 12 years old, you don't appreciate nap time. Don't you wish you could go back and get all them naps you're supposed to take? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I tell you, people say, Preacher, what would you do if you could go back and talk to your younger self? Would you warn them against mistakes? Would you warn them against bad decisions? Would you warn them against foolishness? I'd warn them against one thing. I'd say, you better take every nap you can get. One of these days you're going to have kids, and that's all going to be done. Amen? And so, <laughs> I remember we used to take naps. And, and mom and, we wouldn't take naps. Mom and dad would take naps. And so, uh, we would always, long, long about, I don't know, five o'clock, it'd get real quiet in the house. And the reason is we thought, as kids, we thought to ourselves, now, if we get real quiet, they won't wake up and we won't have to go to church. You know, rarely did that ever happen. I mean, I think maybe once or twice. And be honest, this probably backslid, wasn't going to go to church that night anyway. Amen? It never worked, you know. You didn't want to trust the Weber kids to be your alarm clock on a Sunday afternoon. They just weren't going to tell you when it was time to get up and go. Can I say, you can't trust your flesh to tell you when it's time to serve God. Your flesh is never going to, it's the most unreliable spiritual alarm clock there is. It's never going to tell you when you're doing wrong, and it's never going to tell you when you ought to be doing right. So it means to give attendance to a matter. And then number two, it means to give reverence to a matter. When you say to take heed, you oftentimes are giving a warning to someone that they should uh, be observant and be cautious about a particular matter. I remember when we was uh, doing our uh, road trip out west, we got out in the Badlands, and when you get out there, everywhere you go, there's signs that, that have pictures of rattlesnakes. I'm saying, take heed, because there's rattlesnakes around. We didn't get too far from the car. Amen. And uh, there, there's all these signs that are telling you to take heed, because there could be dangerous animals, dangerous snakes uh, around that area. Well, likewise, hey, the Word of God is full of take heed signs that God gives about certain dangers in our life. And these are some of those take heed signs. It means to give reverence, give respect, don't be flippant 
about a matter. But then it means to give diligence to a matter. So it means not only sometimes when you say take heed that you do this, you're not just saying make sure you do it, but often you're saying make sure you do it well. Uh, don't do it part of the way. Don't do it in a haphazard manner. Instead, give your entire heart and attention to the matter. So that's what it means to take heed. We have searched through these passages and we've seen that God has already warned Israel about a number of things. He's uh, warned them to take heed in the matter of secular relationships in chapter number 2. We're going to have secular relationships. By that I mean that we're going to have relationships in life with people that don't know the Lord. You're going to have business transactions with people. You're going to have responsibilities. You'll probably work in a workplace. We need to be cautious about those relationships. He also warns them in chapter 4 about steadfastly remembering. We need to make sure we don't forget what God has done in our lives. He warns them about straying religiously, that they begin to follow after other gods, after God has given them security in that land. And certainly when God's blessed us, Oftentimes that is a moment of danger. Hey, a wise man is as vigilant after the battle as he is before the battle. A wise man is as vigilant in the moment of victory as he is in the moment of defeat. And certainly Israel had to be warned about that. Last Sunday night we preached on the thought of, of taking heed in the matter of sacrificing recklessly. I know we live in a day where people say, well, you ought to just be able to worship anywhere you're at. And don't worry about it. It ain't no big deal. That's not what God says. He says, take heed that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in any place that thou seest. He says, in the place where I put my name there, that's where you need to be sacrificing. But tonight I want you to notice in our text, we have another take heed that is mentioned. It bears some similarities to some of the things that God has warned about before, but it is distinct in other ways. Look at verse number 30. God says this to his people, Take heed to thyself, that thou be not snared by following them. Now, who does he mean by them? Well, back in verse number 29, he says, When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them and dwellest in their land. So the them is the pagan nations that God will have subjugated, destroyed. And it doesn't mean He destroyed all of their people, but it does mean that He destroyed their nations. Many of them would continue to live in the land during their time, and, and, and their children would be raised after them. And God commands His people. He says, listen, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to give you a large place to dwell in. I'm going to let you subjugate these other nations and fill the land with righteousness. But he says, listen, you better be careful. After you've done that, after that they be destroyed from before thee, that thou inquire not after their gods. Saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. I'll preach to you tonight on this thought, taking heed in the matter of being snared by the residue in our lives. So preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean this. You know, when God saved you, he saved you out of some things. He brought you out of something. Hey, you better thank God He did that. Man, what a shameful salvation it would be if He saved us and left us in that old mess that He found us in. Oftentimes in our lives, we begin to think, well, you know, that's done with, that's in my past, that's never to be visited again, it's never to be encountered again. But i got news for you. Very often, after you've been saved and after God's done a great thing in your life, you know what you'll find? You'll find that those same old things that appealed to you before you got born again, they still appeal to your flesh even after you got born again. You'll find that the same things you struggled with before you got saved, you still struggle with them today, but you got a new man inside you and a new strength inside you and a new resource in the Word of God and a new comfort in the Holy Ghost 
I'm saying this, when you got born again, it's not that all of those old things were eradicated. What it means is God changed the nature of them for you. When the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That don't mean that sin doesn't exist anymore. It means when you go back to that same old sin, it's like a dog returning to the vomit. He might eat it up, but it ain't going to taste as good the second time. When you got born again, hey, listen, you might try to go back to those things and they're still there and you can still engage with them, but you'll find that they are sour to you now. They're bitter to you now. They may still appeal to your flesh, but your spirit is grieved by them. And so God warns the children of Israel. He says, I'm going to bring you into this place. I'm going to cast down these nations. But he says, don't let your guard down because the moment you do, you're going to take up their gods and begin to worship their way. And when you do, you're going to meet their same destruction. I want you to notice three thoughts in our text tonight, and then we'll be done. And they give sort of an overview of the truth that God's giving in this passage. The first is found in verse 28. And I jotted it down this way. We see the plan for God's people in the land. Can I remind you what the land is representative of? It's talking about the land of Canaan. Canaan, though we oftentimes think of it in terms of being being symbolic of heaven. We have songs we sing that way, and, and I've heard people reference it that way. That's fine. I'm not listening. There's a lot worse things in your average hymn book than just that. Amen? And a lot worse erroneous doctrine in, in your average hymn book than just that distinction and that nuance. Uh, but I would say that it is incorrect to view Canaan as a picture of heaven. Canaan was a place with giants. Canaan was a place with obstacles. Canaan was a place with enemies. Canaan was a place that had been polluted and perverted uh, by the tendencies of mankind. But it was also the place of God's will for His people. It's a place of victory. It's a place where God desired to do a great thing in their life. Can I tell you what Canaan is a picture of? It is a picture of the plan of God for His people. It, we could use the terminology the victorious Christian life. It, it is a picture of succeeding in your Christian walk. Uh, it does not mean perfection. does not mean a lack of problems. But what it does mean is ever advancing and growing in your walk with the Lord. I would say this, that God has a plan for His people. And that plan is in the land. God's desire for you is that you live a successful Christian life. Now, a successful Christian life does not necessarily mean a successful business life. It does not mean a successful political life. In fact, the more I watch, the more it seems to be the opposite. I don't know. It does not mean having a, a successful social life necessarily. But when I say a successful Christian life, I mean just that. A Christian life that is advancing and glorifying God and is what God desires for you. God's plan for you is not that you fail, but that you be faithful. It's not that you flag, but it's that you serve Him and are fortified in your walk with Him. And God's plan for Israel as a people was that they dwell in the land and prosper in that place. What was it that He desired for them? I noticed three things. The first is found in verse 28. The Bible says, Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee, with thy children after thee forever, when thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. Isn't it interesting that the first thing God points to is their relationship with the Word of God. And can I say to you tonight, you say, Preacher, what's the will of God for my life? What's the plan of God for me? If I'm to be successful as a Christian, if I'm to live a life that pleases God, what is the plan for my life? I would say, number one, the plan was for them to be a scriptural people. God's desire and God's intention for them 
was that they be a people of the book. Their life defined by the book. Their life determined by the book. And can I say, listen, anything that calls itself Christianity that departs from this book is not Bible Christianity. Anything that calls itself Christianity that departs from the revealed truth of the Word of God, rightly divided, understood in the context, and with Christ as the centerpiece, anything that departs from that, hey man, that is not the life that God intends for His people. What God does desire for you is that you know this book, that you love this book, that you obey this book, that your life be defined by and be saturated with the Word of God. It's amazing how often we attempt to live a successful Christian life divorced from the presence of the Word of God. Uh, We are so stubborn as a people, we are so foolhardy as a people, that we would claim we want to be a good Christian while never reading this book. I would say this, if you're not, this is not just a means to an end, this is an end as well as a means. It is a means to some things in your life, but hey, listen, the Bible is not a byproduct. Hey, the Bible is not just a, a, an instruction manual. The Bible is the very breathed words of God. And if we say, well, preacher, I'm a pretty good Christian. I just don't read my Bible much. And you don't know what being a pretty good Christian is. I would say this. It's that they be a scriptural people. And we should be a people whose lives are determined by the Word of God. This book should reign supreme over your opinion, over my opinion, over your average political pundit's opinion, over the superlative political pundit opinions. Amen? Because uh, I'd sooner go down and listen to homeless folks ramble than listen to these political pundits. Amen? I was listening, I'll tell you this funny story. I was, and I don't know why this is. We don't live in a bad area or anything. We live in a good area. But the other day we were sitting out in the yard and some crazy person comes walking down the road and was screaming. And, uh, you know, used to that'd be weird, but nowadays people walk around with them phones in their head all the time. And you never know. Somebody might just be having a heated argument. But we sat there and we watched them for a while and, and it was, it was somebody that was disturbed, somebody that was touched. And I, I don't know all the details of, of their situation, but they was walking them down the road, and they'd stop every few feet. They'd stop at a house and they'd start cussing at. They start saying, "I want my money," and I was thinking, "Yeah, me too, bud. Get in line, amen." It's I want my, and they carry on all this crazy talk. And I sat and I listened to it, and I thought to myself, "It's still better than some preachers I've heard, amen." <laughs> and it's better than all political commentators I've heard. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I'll tell you this: this book ought to reign supreme. This book matters more than your opinion, more than your perspective, and more than your experience. If it doesn't line up with this book, uh, then it, it, it does not matter to the Christian life and to the Christian experience. I'm not saying people don't have experiences of whatever way that they might have, and there's a, probably a lot of things that goes on in this world that I'd never dream of and I'd never imagine. Uh, but I would say this, that all that matters and is, and is relevant to the Christian experience you're going to find in this book. I would say the plan was, number one, for them to be a scriptural people. Then notice what he says at the end of verse 29, or at the beginning of verse 29. He says, when the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them. I would say this, number two, God's plan for them was that they be a separated people. God did not want His people dwelling in the land with the enemy. Now, uh, let me remind you, Canaan is not a picture of the church in an explicit sense. Canaan is certainly not a picture of our world system. Uh, Canaan is a picture of a victorious Christian life. And it's a reminder that God's people could not enjoy victory while they kept fellowship with those that did not know and love God. 
And I would tell you in our lives, listen, God, separation is not just a recommendation. It's a requirement if we're to live the life that God intends for. Now, I'm not saying a man has to be separate in his personal standards and holiness to be saved. Uh, but I am saying this, that if a person wants to live the life that God desires for him, it's going to take some separation. There are some things we have no business having fellowship with. Hey, listen, what concord hath light with darkness? There are some things we got no business going anywhere near as the people of God. And God expects us to be distinct in the way we live our lives. And God's desire for Israel was that they be a separate people. God did not cut off these nations because He hated these nations. He cut them off because He loved Israel. And He desired for them a greater life than what this world system could provide them. So not only for them to be a separated people, but then look at the end of verse 29. He says this, you're going to possess them, possess their nations, possess their land, and now succeed us them and dwell us in their land. I would say this, that God's plan was for them to be a scriptural people and a separated people, but number three, for them to be a successful people. Now again, we ought to measure success the way that God measures success. Success is not measured by the size of a person's bank account or the size of their social media friends list. It's not defined by the power they may wield over other human beings or the influence that they may have garnered to themselves. But success is measured. Hey, listen, Bob Jones Sr. said success is finding the will of God and doing it. Success is to live a life of obedience to God. If we're pleasing Him, we've been a great success. Hey, listen, let me exhort us as parents, and I don't mean you as parents, I mean us as parents, because I'm raising some too. Hey, the greatest success that my children could be would be to grow up and love and serve God. You say, preacher, don't you want them to have good education? Well, yeah, sure I do. Preacher, don't you want them to, to make lots of money? Sure, I ain't got a retirement plan, amen? I'm counting on them for it. I'm not against any of those things, but I'm saying this, they can do all those things and still be a failure in life. But what success means is knowing the Lord, loving the Lord, and serving the Lord. And that's what I desire for them. It's interesting that God did not plan on Israel failing. He knew that they would. But He did not set them up for failure. He set them up for success. They failed because they chose to fail. They didn't have to fail. He gave them every available opportunity to do the right thing. He gave them every opportunity to love Him and know Him and serve Him and live for Him. Now, I would say this, their failure, even to this day, their failure is not final. God's not cast off Israel forever. Hey, listen, God forbid. God's still got a plan for Israel as a nation. But let me say, they did not have to make the choices that they made. God's desire, His plan for them, was not that they would live in this constant, vicious cycle, Groundhog's Day of rebellion and disobedience. God's plan was for them to succeed in the land. God's desire for you is... Not that you live in this perpetual rut, reliving the same experience of failure and of disappointment. God's plan and desire for you is for you to make meaningful progress in your spiritual development. Now, if your standard is, I'm never going to make a mistake, go ahead and just weep about it because you're going to make mistakes. But certainly our desire should be, hey, listen, I want to go forward in serving the Lord. I was talking to a pastor friend about pastoring the other day, and, and uh, it's just not a surprise, it's all pastors talk about is pastoring. We're talking about church growth and, and, and God's blessings and stuff. I told him, I said, you know, in my experience, uh, uh, growing a church is like pushing a rock up a hill. Uh, you'll push, 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 and then all of a sudden something will happen. Somebody will let the air out of the balloon, and, and you start losing folks, and some things happen. And that rock, you just it, it just starts rolling back down the hill. And growth is not measured by how high the rock gets when you push it. It's measured by how low it rolls to when it rolls back on you. 
If you can keep it from rolling as far back as it rolled the time before, that's where growth is measured and determined. It's not on those big days. It's not on those high days. Because them big days and them high days, man, they're few and far between. And they pass quickly. But it's a question when the bottom falls out, have you gotten the rock any further up the hill than you did the last time the bottom fell out of the whole thing? I would say in your spiritual walk, hey, listen, uh, success and progress is not measured by those high days. It's measured by those low days. Those days when things are not going well. Did the rock roll farther down the hill than it was the last time? You're going to have high days. You're going to have low days when you're serving God. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. But your endeavor, your desire should be, hey, listen, I know sooner or later that rock's going to come rolling back on me. But when it does, I'm bound and determined that by the time I dig my feet deep enough and stop the momentum, that I'm going to be further up the hill than I was the last time when I started. I would say this, that we see God's plan for uh, the, the plan for God's people in the land to be scriptural, separated, and successful. But then God gives them this warning in verse 30. And in it we find the peril for God's people in the land. Oh yes, there is peril in the land. I wish I could tell you you're going to reach a point in your Christianity where it's smooth sailing. But the fact is, you're never going to reach that place until this vile body is made like unto His glorious body. And so there's always going to be pitfalls and peril. What is the peril for them? Well, verse 30 says this. Take heed to thyself, that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee. Now, how could they follow them if they've been destroyed? He's saying, follow down the same path that they followed down. Has it ever dawned on you that there was a time when Gentiles had as right an understanding of who God was as Jews did? I'm going to say that again. There was a time when Gentiles has as right, had as right an understanding of who God was as Jews did. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because there was a time when there wasn't no Jews. There was a time when there was just the, the people that God had created in this world and their descendants, and there was this unbroken trail and line of witness of what was truth. So how did these pagans get in the place that they were in when they uh, approach Israel, when Israel interacts with them? in this time in Israel's history? Well, because there was a time when they God gave them light and they walked not in that light and they continued to pervert themselves and pollute themselves. And sooner or later, God called a man by the name of Abraham out of that pagan darkness. And in him, uh, he formed a people that would become a nation uh, that God would fulfill His promises concerning. I'm saying this, these people have followed a path. And now God tells Israel, don't follow after them. Don't go the direction that they went. Because if you do, here's what's going to happen. When you inquire after their gods, you're going to start to say this. How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. It's interesting to me that the question is not what gods did they serve, but how did they serve their God? What we find here is a perversion of Christianity. And when I say Christianity, I mean that in sort of a colloquial sense. It is a perversion of the worship of the true God. Their intention was not to say, we're going to worship other gods. Their intention was to say, we're going to worship our God in the way that the world worships their gods. Can I tell you this? Christianity today is defined uh, in the mainstream almost entirely by this philosophy. It's not saying we want to chase after the pagan gods. It's saying we want to chase after the true God in a pagan way. What was the danger for them? What was the peril? Well, the first thing was that they pervert their lives. They had a relationship with the Lord. They knew who He was. They knew what He wanted. 
But if they allowed themselves to be allured and ensnared by this world's systems and ideals and philosophies, they would alienate themselves from this God that they knew and that they loved. Can I tell you, God is full and well able to express to you what He desires in the way of worship. And God has spoken about what He wants worship to be. We don't have to go to the church growth gurus. We don't have to go to the CEOs that run them. We don't have to go uh, to the latest and greatest and trendiest and hottest group out there to find out if God is watching the trends list. God has already told us what He desires from us. And when we jettison biblical Christianity to pursue after pagan means and manners of worshiping the true God, He is displeased with that effort. I would say this, the first danger, listen, when you're in the land, don't think you're scot-free because you're still in a place where there are temptations. You're still in a place where you can adopt and embrace the world's philosophies and the world's system. The first peril was that they pervert their lives. Then look at what happens as a result of that. Verse 31, he says, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. Can I tell you, when we change our philosophy of worship, It's not long before we change our concept of the object of our worship. If God is immutable, and the Bible teaches that He is, He's the Lord God, He changeth not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All of a sudden, to make room for the change that we lust after in our own human spirit, we have to redefine then who God is and what God desires. It's part of the reason that the average cultural Christian, and I use that terminology carefully today, that don't mean everybody that's a Christian today is only and exclusively a cultural Christian, but there's a lot of folks that that's all their Christianity is, is culture. And the reason the average cultural Christian is so offended at what the Bible says is because they've lost their true concept of who God is. It's unimportant to them who God actually is. Their only desire is that God be who they want Him to be. So what do they wind up doing? They profaned the Lord. They treated God like these pagans treated their gods. Can I tell you, hey, listen, even if we did to great success, even if we to great success worshipped our God in the way that this world worships its gods and its idols and its superstars and its governments, even if we manage to worship our God as successfully as they have theirs, we have still failed and God is worthy of better worship than that. This this synthetic and craven veneer of adoration and devotion that is really nothing but self-interest that is cloaked in religion, God's worth more than that. He deserves our whole heart, our whole passions, our whole devotion. And what will happen if we allow this world to influence us in that way? It won't just be that it influences us. It will influence our idea of who God is. It will cause us to believe God to be lower and lesser and meaner than what He really is. There's a reason this world hates God. They don't know Him. There's a reason you love Him. You met Him. If you start to change Him in your heart and mind into the God that the world thinks He is, you're going to lose your love for Him. We better let him be who he is in our life. And then I would say there's a danger in verse 31. Look at the next part. It says this, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hateth, have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters, they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Boy, that's striking language in the word of God. He says this, you want to worship me like they worship their gods, but what they call worship, I call wicked. 
I don't desire it. I don't crave it. I don't love it. And I don't value it, God says. And so what happens with their lives? Well, they, they uh, pervert their lives. They profane the Lord. And then what will happen? They will pollute the land with their iniquity. Hey, the Bible says this, that evil communication corrupteth good manners. You know what that means? Bad doctrine leads to bad deeds. We talked in Sunday school this morning about this thing of theological consequence. If I believe A, that means I've got to believe B, and then I've got to believe C, or else I just have an incoherent, inconsistent theological system in my mind. It won't make no sense, and I won't take it seriously. Can I say there have been a great many people that in deviating in some manner, some matter of error, have shipwrecked their whole faith because it has led them down a road of theological consequence. Can I tell you, when we believe the wrong things about who God is, we're not going to live for Him and serve Him and worship Him in the way that He desires. Now somebody's going to say, oh, preacher, you're saying you got it all figured out. No, listen, hey, I ain't got, I ain't got it all figured out. I ain't got much of it figured out. But that which God has already figured out, I'm committed to not argue with Him about it. I'm not saying that there aren't areas where good men could disagree. I'm not saying there aren't places where men that love the Lord and love the Bible might see things through a different lens and perspective. But hey, let's just go ahead and be honest. Let's just be genuine with each other. You know I'm not talking about matters of personal preference. You know what I'm talking about tonight is obedience to the truth of the Word of God. We ought to all agree what righteousness is. We ought to all agree whether we have a Bible. We ought to all agree whether God expects holiness out of our lives. And when we deviate from that, what's going to happen? It's going to affect our lives. It's going to pollute our lives to the degree that they did things that were almost, well, not just almost, were entirely unthinkable for the people of God to be doing. So we see in this passage the plan for God's people in the land. We see the peril for God's people in the land. And finally, in verse 32, we see the protection for God's people in the land. I hope by this point in the message, you have a desire to live for the Lord. I hope by this point in the message, you get that what I'm saying is God wants us to be a successful Christian. God desires for us to live for Him. God has set us up for success and not failure in our spiritual walk. So the question then becomes, and I hope you've already asked this question, preacher, how can I keep that from happening to me. How can I safeguard my life? Verse 32 has a beautifully simple and elegant solution to the whole thing. He says this, What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. It's very simple. You remember the very first thing we said when we was preaching, starting the, the, the message? What does God desire for us to be a scriptural people? God always puts things in their proper order. You'll be a scriptural person. It will settle a lot in your life. And you say, preacher, what is the protection in my life? How can I keep myself on the right track? Three things you can do. Number one, you can receive the Word of God. He says, what things soever I command you. Now, it's implicit in this passage that if we're not willing to receive what's commanded, it can be of no help to us. We have to be willing to accept this book as the Word of God and receive the truth of of it and, and, and recognize it for what it is. Now, by the way, you know what that means? That means reading your Bible. It means sitting under preaching. It means studying the Word of God. It means listening to the faithful wounds of a friend who's trying to exhort you and charge you and challenge you and not bowing up, getting mad, stomping off. What it means is being willing and open to hear God's Word when it's given to you. We've got to receive the Word. The greatest thing you could do in your life to ensure your success as a Christian 
is to read your Bible daily. Number two, to regard the Word. He says, what things soever I command you, observe to do it. In other words, he says, it's not enough just to hear it. You've got to obey it as well. You've got to put it in your life. You've got to regard the Word. You've got to heed the Word. Not only receive it in the sense of hearing the words of it, but then it has to be, and I love that King James Bible word, the engrafted Word. You know what that word engrafted means, right? It's used in the context of, of grafting one plant into another plant. Taking something and putting it in and weaving it into the very DNA of it to such a degree that it just grows together. And after a little while, you couldn't tell where one plant began and where the other branch began. It just looked like one seamless plant because that's what it had become. You know, the, God's desire for the Word of God is not that this just be the dressing for our life. Not that it just be some dusty manual sitting on a table, but that it be so ingrained in our life that people can see it in the way that we live. The engrafted word, man, we've got to regard it. We've got to be willing to obey it. It won't help you. I wish, I wish, man, I wish I could get you to uh, be better by just hitting you with this Bible. That's all we'd do. We'd just bring you in and, and we'd be, and we'd just beat you with it. All right. And some of y'all would take three or four. I wish that worked, but it don't. You've got to make the choice to obey the word of God. Osmosis ain't going to get it done. <laughs> It's going to take accepting the truth of it. And then there's a third thing, and I'm done. We've got to receive the Word. We've got to regard the Word. But then notice what he says. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. We've got to revere the Word. Uh, one of the problems, and I, I want to be explicit in how I say this, I'm against the, the meddling with God's inspired and errant preserved Word. I'm against it. God's against it. And certainly we could take a few moments here and we could just bang that drum and drive that nail. But can I tell you that the more prevalent way in which men twist and abuse the Word of God today, it's not just... Men do not only abuse the Word of God by gathering around a 12-foot oak table and, and, and deciding they want to manipulate this Word and change that Word and diminish this doctrine and, and pollute this and pollute that. That happens. That happens. Can I tell you what's a more prevalent problem in the in the church today? Uh, listen, we ain't running out of King James Bibles to give folks. Yeah, we're, we're not sitting around going, boy, I wish I'd find a pure copy of the Word of God. We ain't, that ain't our problem. You know, the problem is the problem is people that claim and profess to believe the Bible that will warp it and twist it, read things into it that ain't there, and read things out of it that are sitting on the page because it's what's convenient for their life. I wonder this, do you revere, do you respect this book enough to take it as it is? As it is. Whatever it says, in the context, rightly discerned and divided and applied, but are you willing to take the Bible for what it is? It's always funny to me, you'll hear people talk about preaching sometimes, they'll say hard preaching. Boy, that was hard preaching. I don't know if that's hard preaching or not. I'll tell you this, this book has hard edges. And if you decide you're going to you're going to jump on it, you might skin your knee. This is that rock that listen. If it if it falls on you, it'll grind you to powder. If you fall on it though, it's going to break you. And I'm just telling you, listen. There ain't really no hard preaching. We call it hard preaching, but that's just because we got soft hearing. We just don't like what it says. But the truth is what the truth is. We're either going to accept the truth of it or not. And the greatest thing you can do is submit your heart to the Word of God. Let it reign supreme over your life. If it says something you don't like, and if it never has, you ain't been reading it. 
You read it and it's going it's going to afflict your flesh. If you'll get in there and read it and in that moment when the Holy Ghost smites your heart, you'll say, Lord, it's your book and you're God and I'm not. So you must be right and I must be wrong. Do you love the Bible enough to do that? Or do you find yourself manipulating it, adding thereto, or maybe diminishing it, trying to take away? If you do that, you're setting yourself up for failure. This book is exactly what it ought to be without your help, without your editorial insight. God said what He meant and He meant what He said. This book don't need to be rewrote. It needs to be reread. Hey, listen, it don't need to be reworked. It needs to be obeyed. And if you'll obey this book, you'll find that's the surest way to a successful Christian life. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the preaching tonight. If God touched your heart, I want you to meet Him down in this altar. Let Him have His will and His way in your life. There ain't a single person in this room that's above responding to this. And I don't say that to say you have to. I'm not trying to browbeat you. But I'm saying there ain't nobody that should be embarrassed to respond to this tonight. Uh, Because there ain't a one of us that is not prone to allowing this to happen in our lives. We all are. And so if this, if there's some area of your life God's touched on, meet Him in this altar. Do business with God. Lord, we love You. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.